This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Blacking It Up, The Young Turks, Media Matters, the BBC News Quiz, The Majority Report, The Progressive, The Bugle, On the Media, The Green News Report, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and The Matthew Filipovich Show. This morning, Mitt Romney decided to get froggy and tried to do a uh, pre-State of the Union, Union State. What? Wait, who is Mitt Romney to be having a? He did. He did. He did like a. a, a, a How a, does he know what the State of the Union what? is? Uh, apparently, he was prepared for it. He, this morning, he did a rebuttal to the State of the Union that hadn't happened yet. What? Wait. Yes. Yes. And uh, the best part about it was that even in his rebuttal, he was actively lying uh, to the point where I was like, I was sitting there reading and just going, "Really? Is this what?" Is he? You can't. You can't rebut the president and lie as you're rebutting the thing that the president hasn't said yet. Like, does does, does no one else notice that? that Maybe you can't he do had that? a spy that got a copy of the speech. I would argue him? that's maximum politician. <laughs> At that moment, that is the pinnacle of him being a politician, lying during a rebuttal to a speech that has not occurred yet. Yeah, I'm not okay with that. So, so you know, so you know what that means. That's right. We have black check music. Are we, spon- like- are we sponsored by anyone at this point? Not yet. But can not- we? Can okay. we? Can we make it up? Can we just say we're sponsored by Subway? Sponsored? No. 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 We're sponsored by. Um, the chat room. The chat room. <laughs> well, this very, black check is that, sponsored by the chat actually, room. Actually, in all reality, that's very that's actually completely accurate. Well, yeah, at this point, yeah, yeah. Uh, just this morning, uh, he was lying to the point where I started just writing as he was. Uh, as I was live tweeting his lies as he was lying and just pointing out that it was a lie. Uh, for instance, uh, Obama had two years with a Democratic Congress where he could do anything he wanted. That is a false statement, sir. Uh, you act as if, one, Republicans weren't filibustering and stopping anything they could possibly could. The only way they could do anything is when, uh, if the, uh, Obama had a super commi- uh, a majority, and he, uh, he had a super majority, uh, how long? Two months maybe? Like, that, that, that was the only way Obama could do anything he wanted, because you guys made sure to make it very difficult on that. And you know what? Government's not supposed to be run on the basis of, uh, I don't know, a supermajority. You shouldn't have to have a supermajority every time you want something to happen. No. That's ridiculous. That's, that's not. That's stupid. Uh, another, another lie he said. Uh, Obama did nothing uh, in, in his three years of, uh, of uh, being president but do favors for his friends. Yeah, yeah, that's what Obama did. Yeah, because I and he brought up Solyndra and stuff like that. Yeah, so that's so, not. But yeah, did he have other examples? Yeah, because you know, you know, um, uh, healthcare reform—that's for his friends. Uh, and by I'm friends, pretty, he means American people. I'm pretty sure that most of his friends already had health care. No, that was for his friends. Mm, mm, ma'am, ma'am, you're right. You're right. Uh, another lie. Another lie that uh, oh, Mitt Romney uh, flat out uh, did. Actually, it wasn't flat out. It was way more implied, but it was clearly implied. Uh, implicating that cl- cash for clunkers didn't work. Yeah, that totally worked. That, that, that worked really well. What are you talking about, sir? That's ridiculous. Like, li- like like I feel as if he doesn't even hear his own words at this point. He just he just says things. People tell him these are the things that are, are going to hit, and people just go, "Yeah, Obama did do cash for uh, cash for clunk- clunkers." So apparently, obviously, it failed. Obama did it. It's it's a failure. Uh, number another 
lie. This is, I think, a lie number four that I, that I just saw half listening to his speech. These are just the lies I picked up. Uh, Obama is going to use the State of the Union with his divisive, uh, 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 with his divisive language. What? Yeah, you know, divisive language. You know, like, uh, what's, that's what's no. hot in the streets. Like, socialist. Oh, wait, that's not Obama yelling out that all the time. He's not even yelling at, uh, okay. like, he's not even calling them names. When he talks about no. the 99% and the 1%, that's just all Americans. That's not Republican Americans or anything like and that. And has Obama actually used language saying, like, the 99% versus the 1%? No, no. He, he, said, he said millionaires and billionaires uh, and uh, jet owners. Yeah, so that but so that's divisive, because you're separating the hot 500 people here to the how many million of people over hundreds of million people over here? Yeah, you divisive son of a yeah yeah. So too, I'm sorry, State of the Union liar guy. Yeah, this is by the way, this was just this morning. <laughs> and and number five, I saw because I saw five lies without even. Like paying attention much. Uh, Obama tells tall tales about how the country is thriving on his watch. When did Obama ever say that? Obama constantly says that we're working. We have to, we have more work to do. We have to move (laughs) things forward. Things are getting better, but people are still feeling it. That is the Obama talking point. That's That's not even like new. Because he doesn't want to give us false. Right. Right. Obama had uh, Obama learned his lesson when he was uh, when he was running that you can't say magical things because then people will hold you to magical things. That's it. Because if you say hope and change, people will decide what hope and change looks like in their own mind right. and decide that that is what you're supposed to do. So if I believed, if hope for me was that I was going to be able to walk down the street and float on butterflies, and then I cannot walk down the street and then float on butterflies, you have failed with your hope. Obama doesn't do that now. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a hard lesson you had to learn. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, those are just five lives right there. So sorry, sorry, Mitt Romney. Uh, you've been black checked. You tell me lies, lies, lies. Sweet little lies. When I can't unbear the truth. You tell me lies, lies, lies. Sweet little lies. Help me make them all come true Tell me that the rain won't fall today Tell me that the tax man lost his way State of the Union tonight by President Obama, and it turns out the State of the Union is strong. Er. Stronger, he said. Yes, stronger. he didn't say strong. It's stronger than it was. I mean, he he painted a contrast. A lot of people are t- are talking about the president not having been a successful president. Now the narrative about his successes begins. So yes, the State of the Union was stronger than when he got it, is what he said. So that, there's two parts to that. It seems like a small thing, but it's actually not because it goes towards the theme of the night. One part of it is. Look, I get that we're not in particularly strong shape right now, yeah. right? But the point I want to emphasize is how much stronger we've gotten. And now to buttress that point, he talked about three million jobs created since the end of the recession. Yes. And that is true. And we've shown the chart over and over on the Young Turks. You see the recession takes out this huge amount of jobs and you see it start in the Bush era, obviously expand into the first year of Obama, Correct. and then you see the jobs go up. He's got to reemphasize that over and over again. He started doing that tonight. Second point about the speech, 
God, he was so much stronger. Yeah. You know, and, he, you know, and, and I think it go, you can't do the second part without the first part. I think the swagger in your second point is because of what's going on in your first point. I think he feels like the economy is getting better. He's feeling a little bit of momentum that he hasn't felt in a while. He has victories overseas. He's seeing jobs created here. He's seeing housing starts go up. He's seeing General Motors on top of the world. He actually can kind of like show his feathers a little bit and be kind of excited here, which is good. Right, but you know, when he was doing his campaign speeches, I thought that he was a little listless. I mean, he had already kind of begun yeah. the campaign. He'd gone to you know places like Virginia, et cetera, and done his. And I was like, ah, I'm not inspired. This time, he looked like back in 2008 when he was running yeah, strong. There's something right? different about the State of the Union too. When you're in front of Congress, the world is watching. You know, a campaign speech in Kansas. Yes, a lot of us watched it. A lot of other people watched it, but. You know, everybody's watching this. The eyes of the world uh, were, or the country certainly were on him tonight. And right. I think that's important. And I think you made a great point. There, there's some swagger, and he took a couple of victory laps on, hey, hey, I killed bin Laden, right. in case you didn't notice. Yeah. And uh, the auto industry, I rescued them, and now GM's back to being number one in some categories. Yeah. I'll take a victory lap on that. And in a couple of moments, I almost thought he was going to look back at Boehner and be like, what now? Right. right? <laughs> and then Boehner would have gone like this. What? <laughs> I've never seen someone look so consistently angry slash bored. The chances he's not having a cigarette right this second, zero. Oh, yeah, he yeah. couldn't wait to get he out of there. He could not wait like. to get out. He might have been having one then. The other thing, I think, to point out about tonight's speech is that it wasn't full of flowery, you know, kind of uh, homages to people and getting people. It was very businessman-like, which I thought was surprising to me. Anyway. Yeah, and actually it wasn't that long. He got yeah, in, he yeah. got out, he said, here's what I have to say, and, and he made a pretty effective case. And, you know, he's got some new proposals about insourcing, giving tax breaks to the, the companies that do that. I thought his idea of taking the war costs and half of it going to pay down the national debt right. and half of it to nation building here at home was a good one. And, but most importantly, we found out right before the speech that he's going to appoint Eric Schneiderman, who is a great attorney general of New York, tough actually cares to do his job uh, to oversee uh, the fraud uh, committed by the banks to see if there is fraud, civil, criminal, whatever it might be. Now, if he's serious about that and they really give Schneiderman power, that's the biggest news of yep. the night. And not only because of its substance, but it also gives you a sense of like, hey, for the first time, President Obama might be serious about holding the banks accountable. Correct. Which couldn't come a day it's uh, huge news you know early and the presumption is that he and holder work well together because of their positions in the same justice department so i think but holder has been i think miserable so far i, in, I agree he hasn't done banks. anything but if this is the beginning of that something and then right. you know if, if holder looks at what schneiderman brings him it's probably better coming from schneiderman than anyone else and there's a small chance that people like geithner and and then hence the president were holding holder back we don't know who's re responsible for that but if schneiderman is there that maybe gives gives hold of the green light to let's go get the sons of bitches, yeah. uh, which by far would be the best thing that I came think that's, out of. that's the salient point. I don't know that they, I, I mean, it's really conjecture to say they were holding him back. I don't think they were holding Holder back. He doesn't seem like someone, despite his last name, that can be held back if he wants to be, so. Yeah, I'm not so sure. I think he's a little bit more political than that. But anyway, the bottom line of the speech is you got a president that looks confident, that is saying some of the right things, and even acting in some of the right ways, which is by far the most important, because we've heard a lot of great speeches from Obama. Unfortunately, in three years, 
some of that or a lot of that did not get delivered. But here, if he, you know, with the Schneiderman pick, you begin to get a sense that maybe he's a little bit more serious about acting the right way, and not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. I also think when he sees what's going on on the other side, when he sees the, the condition of the Republican Party, it has to give him a little bit of energy as well, because he, he, he kind of feels more licensed because they're a disaster right now. The people that are going to run against him are a disaster. The congressional party is a, a disaster. At right now, Congress, the Democrats are polling better in generic House uh, votes. It's, it's, it's a perfect storm for the moment, and we know that that changes quickly. Uh, Republican approval ratings are as low as they've ever been. Uh, the unfavorability of Newt Gingrich was already near 60%. The other leading candidate, uh, Romney, is now over 50% for the first time right. and trying to catch Newt Gingrich in unfavorability. So, yeah, it, we, it's a long, long year ahead until we get to November, of course, and the election. Uh, but right now, he's got to be pre feeling pretty good about his, his status. In fact, this is the first time I felt good about his chances of re-election. Because before, when I see a guy who's listless, a guy who doesn't fight back, yeah. and, I'm, and he's going to run against a Republican who's going to fight very, very hard, I didn't feel good about that. The guy I saw tonight, I feel a little bit better about. Both because of his chance of re-election, but more importantly, that he might actually do something right. if he got re-elected. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. The right-wing media have responded to President Obama's State of the Union speech with predictable attacks, calling it, quote, class warfare and accusing him of being partisan. The president using Warren Buffett's secretary to kick off his class warfare campaign in last night's State of the Union address. Tonight, instead of embracing an opportunity to bring America together, the president elected to invoke class warfare and further split an already deeply divided nation by focusing on partisan issues rather than pressing ones. Last night, our president declared war on success. In the name of this class warfare, politics, and this envy, he has come out and vilified the people who work like that to be able to win. But their praise for the official Republican response by Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels couldn't have been more effusive. That was one of the best speeches I've heard as a response to the State of the Union. Steve, whose taxes are in a bit of a state? America's. Yes, presumably. states, yes. This would be POTUS, as they call him. The world's clumsiest and most graceless acronym. Uh, <laughs> president of the United States. They have this strange thing in America where once a year, the president is allowed an hour of primetime television to talk about how marvellous he is and how marvellous everything is. Can you imagine primetime TV in Britain? They suddenly handed over for an hour to David Cameron to tell you how marvellous everything is. I mean, you'd be on the Dave channel before you could say POTUS, really, couldn't you? <laughs> um, so he mainly talked about taxes and how the very rich ought to pay more taxes, which was handy because Mitt Romney, the leading Republican candidate, had had to uh, declare his um, tax return mm. this week. And it turned out he'd only paid 13% tax on an income of $41 million. But it isn't true that all very rich Americans are sort of selfish, tax-dodging. Bill Gates, for example, yeah. who the richest man in the world, he's, he's giving it all away. This week, he gave away another 750 billion, but he also popped up in Deptford in uh, southeast London. He popped up and spoke to a school assembly. Oh, I want to tell you how to be a success in business. 
in his kind of Kermit the Frog voice. Yes. Apparently he was very good. He spoke for 40 minutes, uh, and then he suddenly said, "Sorry, Microsoft X Chairman has encountered a problem and needs to close," and, uh, <laughs> uh, and left. But he's, you know, he's a, a, an American billionaire who seems like a, yeah, no, a, a he's decent a, he's type. A good egg. Well, also but, Obama um, referenced in the State of the Union this thing called the Buffett Rule, suggested by Warren. You can't Buffett. go until everyone's been. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, no, that was very much it, really. The Buffett Rule, I think, says that millionaires should not be paying less tax proportionately yep. than their secretaries. Mitt Romney has now been uh, replaced as the Republican frontrunner. Uh, by, by Newt. By Newt Gingrich, yeah. despite uh, the fact that he previously stole Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Americans must be starting to wonder, you know, when they're looking at an election in which the three main candidates are called Barack, Newt and Mitt. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are IKEA storage cabinets with more sensible... <laughs> more sensible names than this. Uh, did you say that Obama says his most treasured possession is the flag that was carried by the Navy SEAL team who shot Osama bin Laden? And the ball that they balanced on their nose. <laughs> President Obama pledged to tackle the tax breaks of the super-rich in his State of the Union address as Mitt Romney's tax affairs continued to dominate the Republican presidential race. Obama said that the millionaires should be subject to the Buffett rule, named after Warren Buffett, which is a light wind that annoys rabbits. <laughs> I listen to the wind, to the wind of my soul. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. State of the Union was, uh, it was a good speech. Wasn't great. You know, for what it's worth, uh, President Obama outlined um, some policies that I agreed with, some that, uh, of course, I found to be uh, eh, somewhat repugnant. And then a bunch that I was like, eh, it ain't going to happen anyways. I mean, you understand that under virtually no circumstance is a State of the Union address in, the, in a uh, presidential election year in this climate going to really mean much. Let's go over uh, some of the stuff in the State of the Union that uh, struck my... Well, first off, of course, uh, President Obama talked quite a bit about uh, killing Osama bin Laden, or he himself did not, but uh, the uh, Navy SEALs uh, team... I guess it was Team Six. And apparently, uh, last night, just before the uh, State of the Union, the same uh, Navy SEALs team parachuted into Somalia in the middle of the night and uh, rescued, released, 
uh, a woman, an American woman and a Danish man who have been held hostage by Somali pirates. Uh, that's good. You know, I think the administration is taking any opportunity to do these type of things. Um, I guess good. But in the you know, it's very hard for me to get worked up about uh, one man and one woman who have been kidnapped by pirates in Somalia based upon uh, the fact that we probably over the past month have killed more civilians than those two with drones in Pakistan. I don't know, maybe over the past week. It's just very hard for me to get my gumption up. I suppose it would be different if it was my own family. Uh, but that's why we're theoretically a country of laws and not uh, men or women, as it goes. But uh, be that as it may, uh, there was that ch uh, chest thumping. The worst part of the speech for me, and if you followed the speech and you are familiar with this program, you would know it, uh, what it was. I mean, aside from the sort of the platitudes, I think at one point uh, President Obama said, there are those people who say that America is uh, in decline. And I can't, I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly how he put it. But it was literally something that I would hear when I'm dropping off my six-year-old. And uh, if George Bush had said this, I think I would have vomited. And it doesn't sound that much better coming out of President Obama's mouth, quite frankly. I think he said something to the effect of, uh, he said, uh, anyone who told you America's in decline doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, of course, he's addressing, you know, uh, Mitt Romney and Mitch Daniels, who came on after him, who said, you know, America's in decline. We're going off a cliff. So these are just sort of political games that, um, I don't know, to me seem sillier and sillier as they go on. But uh, I guess that's part of what you need to do. But the worst part of the speech for me, not rhetorically speaking, but from a policy standpoint, was the American people know what the right, right choice is. So do I. As I told the speaker this summer, I'm prepared to make more reforms that rein in the long-term costs of Medicare and Medicaid and strengthen Social Security so long as those programs remain a guarantee of security for seniors. In other words, that's the grand bargain. I'm willing to, put, uh, to cut Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. And then he goes on in... in exchange for changing the tax code. Now, here's the thing. There is going to be no grand bargain this year. The Republicans would no way ever vote for anything that Obama proposes. And so my annoyance at this is mitigated by that knowledge that I'm sure that President Obama has. At the same time, the policies that I'm about to outline that he suggested that I agree with, I have the same mitigation of excitement because he knows they're not going to be implemented either. But I guess there's some value in this rhetorically for his campaign because it, it shows that he's willing to um, screw over uh, poor people and seniors. So uh, President Obama suggested a couple of things. 
One is he called on uh, Congress to toughen laws against securities fraud and strengthen the ability of the Securities and Exchange Commission to punish Wall Street firms that repeatedly violate the anti-fraud statutes. I'm not convinced that the Securities and Exchange Commission doesn't have this ability right now. Because when they go into court and they want to let these um, uh, fraudsters off uh, the hook with just a penalty, it gets thrown out. That's what happened uh, with this Judge Rakoff, I think it is, in, uh, in New York a month ago. So uh, put that down for a nice bit of rhetorical flourish. Uh, but not one that's terribly relevant. Hey, hold the applause, at least some of it anyway, because there were several troublesome passages in Obama's State of the Union address. First, he said he was still open to a foolish compromise on Social Security and Medicare, which would force Americans to work longer and get less benefits. We don't need a Democrat to hack away at these crucial social programs. Second, he was belligerent on Iran, saying, to raucous applause, that he would take no options off the table, which means he'd blow Iran off the map if it got one nuclear weapon, even though the U.S. has thousands and Israel has hundreds. And third, he took a gratuitous swipe at universal single-payer health care, he said, I believe what Republican Abraham Lincoln believed, that government should do for people only what they can't do better by themselves and no more. As an illustration, he said, that's why our health care law relies on a reformed private market, not a government program. Huh? Obama used to be for single-payer universal health care. Then, when he was running for president the first time, he said, if I were starting from scratch, I'd be for single-payer. Now he disparages single-payer to score cheap political points proving yet again that he's still using progressives as props and foils. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. President's talking news now, and anti-presidents love to talk, uh, almost as much as they love to answer the phone in the Oval Office by saying, Paolo's Peter Parler, how can I help you? <laughs> it's just a bit of harmless fun until it's the president of China on the line. <laughs>
complaining about where his large pepperoni pizza that he ordered 45 minutes ago is. Except then it somehow gets even funnier. The point is, this week, President Obama delivered his third State of the Union address. Now, State of the Union night used to be a relatively simple affair, Andy. You had your main course, the speech itself, uh, followed by a rebuttal dessert from the opposition. A simple meal that the media could digest overnight and then comfortably dump out by morning. But no more. Now the evening has become a procession of multiple official rebuttals after the speech, <laughs> uh, along with anyone who has access to YouTube account releasing their own rebuttal, usually in the form of remixes, auto-tuning, puppets or kittens. <laughs> the, the Tea Party Express have their own rebuttal tradition now, started last year when Michelle Bachman uh, stared an eerie three inches away from the camera and made America feel like she was addressing a country just over its shoulder. <laughs> uh, she was like the opposite of the Mona Lisa. Wherever you were in the room, it was like she was not looking at you. <laughs> this year, it was Herman Cain, the uh, pizza CEO and strong contender for the most ridiculous presidential candidate of all time. <laughs> he was the star speaker. And look, the Hermanator knows his audience, Andy. And when he's in front of a Tea Party crowd, he's going to give that Tea Party crowd something for them to hold their lighters up in the air over. And so he'd come with a bag of historical catnip, which led to one <laughs> amazing moment when he said, you know, it was 7073. When the colonies got fed up of old King George and the Brits, two years later, we had the start of the American Revolution. Eight years later, we won. We can do it again. <laughs> I thought, holy shit, is he suggesting that America fight another war against the British? Is this his thinking out of the box plan? So I did what I had to do, Andy. I put on a red coat, I pulled my musket out from underneath the bed where I've hide it, and I took to the streets. <laughs> I handled our business. <laughs> You're a hero, John. <laughs> MBE's in the post. Um, Obama called for uh, higher taxes for the wealthy, uh, which I guess in context is a bit like asking Henry VIII to have one fewer wife. I mean, he'd still have loads of wives. Maybe suggesting politely that Donald Rumsfeld gives away just a couple of those golden statues of himself. He'd still have 68 golden statues of himself. And it gave the Republicans the opportunity to take uh, a break from slagging themselves off to slag Obama off instead before returning to slagging themselves off and complaining about being attacked by themselves whilst attacking themselves for attacking themselves. <laughs> Long live democracy. It's absolutely awesome when it's on form. The speech itself was a fiery defence of the last few years in power, uh, combined with an attack on the uh, inactivity of Congress and a call for a fairer tax system. Perhaps strangely, uh, President Obama opened the speech by saying... For the first time in two decades, Osama bin Laden is not a threat to this country, to the cheers of everyone in Congress. And I thought for a moment that that might be it. <laughs> he might just say, for the first time in two decades, Osama bin Laden is not a threat to this country, before dropping the mic, or in this case, picking up the podium and then dropping that podium, <laughs> saying, that's it from me, see you next year. <laughs> I mean, that, that probably should have been it, Andy. Yes, the economy's a mess. Yes, America is still involved in a quagmire of a war, but he did kill bin Laden over the last 12 months. And if he'd done it closer to the State of the Union, perhaps that would have been all he had to say. Fellow Americans, uh, hands up who killed bin Laden. Just me? I f***ing thought so. Obama out! <laughs> as fireworks came flying out of the podium and Def Leppard were lowered from the ceiling singing, Pour some sugar on me! <laughs> That's about 15 shows you've sung in, in a row, John, I think. <laughs> what a streak. Uh, an interesting side note to the State of the Union is that one member of the government in power 
traditionally always has to stay back in the White House just in case anything happens <laughs> in the 90 minutes or so that it takes to deliver the speech. And it's got to be quite a nervous time for them, or I suppose quite an exciting one. <laughs> and this year, the responsibility fell to Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. And I think it's worth checking the Oval Office security tapes, because there's absolutely no way that Tom Vilsack was not walking around the Oval <laughs> Office in his pants, pretending to be president the whole time. <laughs> Vilsack ran for president in 2008. There is simply no way that he didn't put his feet up on the desk in the Oval Office, close his eyes, and talk into an imaginary camera saying, People of America, it is I, President Vilsack, the greatest president <laughs> in the history of this country. Your words, not mine. <laughs> I'd never say that about myself, but I guess that's one of the many things that you love about me, President Vilsack. <laughs> I was talking to my wife, the first lady, Charlize Theron Vilsack, yesterday, <laughs> and she said that I was the most handsome president in the history of the world, with the biggest muscles and the coolest hair. <laughs> anyway, that's all I wanted to say. Please get back to enjoying your movie, Indiana Jones and the Torpedo of Pain, starring myself, Tom Vilsack. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. What? 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 I'm taking my feet off the desk. Okay, <laughs> I'll leave. Please don't tell the president I was in here. And the earth begins to freeze this quiet Remember the 2010 State of the Union Address? Awkward. With all due deference to separation of powers, last week the Supreme Court reversed a century of law that I believe will open the floodgates for special interests, including foreign corporations, to spend without limit in our elections. Viewers could see Justice Samuel Alito grimacing and mouthing the words, not true. The State of the Union Address is perhaps not the best forum for a discourse among branches of the U.S. government, but isn't mere attendance by Supreme Court justices a way of communicating? If not, then why do some justices pointedly opt out? That's precisely the question answered in a new paper of Potted Plants and Political Images, the Supreme Court and the State of the Union Address. Co-author Michael W. Giles says 2010's showdown was uncharacteristic. Probably a breach of decorum on both sides, both in terms of the pointedness of the president's comments and certainly at least over the past few decades, the presence of any response to the speech by a member of the Supreme Court. So what do you make of Justice Scalia's comment that attendance is a juvenile exercise. Isn't that what he said? Well, I think he more saying that it's an event characterized by juvenile behavior and that he uh, objects to being invited to the indignity. Is some of the behavior uh, juvenile? I, I guess that's in the eye of the beholder. Democracy is never genteel. People think that it's terrible in today's times, but there's lots of historical examples of this behavior, you know, going back to the, to the founding. Justice Samuel Alito, he once said that it's very hard because presidents will fake you out. 
So if the president says, isn't this the greatest country in the world? And if you sit there looking like the proverbial potted plant, he said, you look like you're very unpatriotic. So you get up and you start to clap. And then the president will say, because we are conducting a surge in Iraq or because we're going to enact health care reform. And then you have to immediately stop clapping. It's very awkward. Do you have any sympathy for Alito? Not really. (laughs) First, that's a hypothetical that my colleague Todd Peppers, who did most of the reviewing of videotape, etc., didn't see a lot of examples of. Generally, the justices don't respond much to any of the comments. If you were watching the most recent State of the Union, they essentially uh, sat and, and listened while people were rising on both sides around them. Now, after Alito's reaction to the chiding of Obama a couple of years ago, he said he wasn't going to be attending, Scalia doesn't attend, and yet there's this assumption that justices do traditionally attend, and you found that's not the case. Well, the first evidence we have that they were in attendance was the 1957 State of the Union Address. From that period forward, they intended in force Up until 1980, there were at least eight justices on average there. It has fallen off since 1980, and particularly in the the early 2000s, Justice Breyer alone was in attendance at three of the addresses. So why the fall off? The things that we did find to have an effect might be what one would expect. That is that as justices get older, the probability of attendance decreases. On the other hand, many justices like Brennan were regular attenders despite advanced age and and tenure. Justices tend to go to those addresses if the president is the one who appointed them. But beyond that, partisanship just did not predict attendance at the State of the Union addresses. Michael, do you think they should attend? Yes, I think they should attend. The court depends upon public support more than any other branch of government. Uh, Beginning with Madison in the Federalist Papers, the argument has been made, and I think reasonably so, that absent the power of the purse or the sword, the court's powers rest upon the support of the American public. This is a real opportunity for the court to be seen. They wear the robes that sets them apart. They don't rise to partisan one-liners to applaud. This is exactly the kind of image that declares the importance of the court, but also the distinctiveness of the court. How do you think the justices did this year? I think they looked like a hedge, a row of boxwoods. (laughs) But I think if you were looking early on, the fact that you had the president greeting them, that Roberts appointed by George W., uh, Kennedy appointed by a Republican president, greeting, smiling, as well as Ginsburg hugging the president, that suggests that while they can have policy dust-ups, that these are not personal conflicts. That was an important moment for people to see. This magic moment So different and so new Was like any other 
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. President Obama is in Nevada and Colorado this Thursday, taking his speech on the road with a tour of several states to promote clean energy proposals from his latest State of the Union address on Tuesday, which had something for everyone on energy. This country needs an all-out, all-of-the-above strategy that develops every available source of American energy. He spent more time on energy than any other State of the Union address in recent memory, and he included a not-so-subtle jab at Republicans. He celebrated General Motors' return to number one in global car sales after Republicans had advocated letting GM die. But President Obama threw out plenty of red meat after that for right-wingers with lots of drill baby drill and frack baby frack expanding on domestic oil and gas drilling. We've opened millions of new acres for oil and gas exploration. And tonight I'm directing my administration to open more than 75% of our potential offshore oil and gas resources. We have a supply of natural gas that can last America nearly 100 years. And my administration will take every possible action to safely develop this energy. That fractastic estimate of 100-year supply of natural gas is questionable since the Federal Energy and Information Administration last week just revised downward their estimates for U.S. shale gas reserves by two-thirds. One independent study estimates as little as 20 years in the supply. Nonetheless, there was plenty in that speech for the right-wingers to absolutely love, but... Anything in there for anyone who wasn't a right-winger? Yes, let's listen in. I will not walk away from the promise of clean energy. I will not cede the wind or solar or battery industry to China or Germany because we refuse to make the same commitment here. We've subsidized oil companies for a century. That's long enough. It's time to end the taxpayer giveaways to an industry that rarely has been more profitable and double down on a clean energy industry that never has been more promising. The clean energy proposals were by far the most detailed and substantive of any State of the Union speech. And we should also point out that it's probably the first time most Americans have even heard of these initiatives since they're rarely covered in the corporate media. Development of clean energy on enough public land to power three million homes. For the Department of Defense, the world's largest consumer of energy, will make one of the largest commitments to clean energy in history. The Navy purchasing enough capacity to power a quarter of a million homes a year. And he even snuck in this for the first time in a long time. He said the forbidden words out loud. The differences in this chamber may be too deep right now to pass a comprehensive plan to fight uh, climate change. Uh, To fight, I think he meant fight climate change, but he actually said the words out loud in a State of the Union address. But not to do anything about it, only to blame Congress for not doing anything about it. Well, aren't you a negative Nelly? Speaking of negative Nellies, Indiana's Republican Governor Mitch Daniels had the task of delivering the Republican response to the State of the Union address, offering a remarkable window into the Republican alternate universe. The extremism that stifles the development of homegrown energy 
or cancels a perfectly safe pipeline that would employ tens of thousands or jacks up consumer utility bills for no improvement in either human health or world temperature is a pro-poverty policy. The extremism that would lead the Republican response to come out and lie about what the president is calling for and even toss in things like uh, thousands of jobs lost on the Keystone XL pipeline when the company who makes the pipeline themselves has said it's hundreds, not thousands, that is what I would call extremism. It seems to me, Des, what the president was doing was making an appeal to everyone on the right and everyone on the non-right. The gamble is that everyone is going to either love him or everyone is going to hate him. Seeing as how a new poll released by CBS finds an extraordinary 91% of Americans approve of the proposals in the State of the Union address given by the president means that, well, maybe he made the right gamble after all. But if you're gonna play the game, boy, you gotta learn to play it right. You got to know when to hold up, know when to fold up, know when to walk away, and know when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. Here is your first quote. With a rule like that, I guess it was worth crying over spilt milk. (laughs) Yeah, that's the second time this week that didn't get a laugh. (laughs) That knee slapper was the comedy highlight of what big speech this week? The State of the Union. Yes, indeed. With that joke, the State of the Union, yes, you got it right. With that joke, President Obama finally proved he wasn't born to a Kenyan anti-colonialist in Nairobi. He was born to my Uncle Morty in Flatbush. (laughs) Analysts agreed it was the lamest joke in a State of the Union ever, at least since Nixon went with Eisenhower. I hardly knew her. I liked it. I liked it because, A, it was a dorky joke, and he thought it was funny, which it sort of brings out the... He's kind of a dork. I mean, come on. Kind of. (laughs) He's the dork in chief. I actually read an analysis that said that his team carefully planned for him to tell a lame joke so as to connect with America, who also tell lame jokes. Like, oh, he's one of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, got it. I'll bet Obama's going to ask McConnell to pull his finger. Then he'd be a lot like me. Now, the Mitch Daniels, governor of Indiana, he gave the Republican response. He said that in the GOP's view, this isn't a nation of have and have-nots, but, quote, a nation of haves and soon-to-haves. That's right, guys sleeping under a bridge. You're soon to have tuberculosis. Congratulations! Are you serious? That's the new spin? That's what he said. Okay, that's that makes me feel better about myself. Yeah, I yeah. soon will be okay. You'll soon, you'll, yeah. <laughs> no, you have an opportunity, opportunity. to be okay. Yeah. That doesn't to mean you're going to be okay. Right. You're not broke. You're pre-rich. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Pre-rich. Pre-rich. The new spin.
But so, again, the State of the Union. I have to tell you, my overall reaction was sort of... Eh, you know, eh. You know, it was fine. It was fine, I guess. But but as I've said before, time and time again on the show, the truth is, I really don't buy anything that President Obama says anymore. I don't buy it. You know, I, I just, I don't believe it. Uh, but, but just let me be clear right here. Just because, just because I don't believe it doesn't mean I don't welcome some of the rhetoric that was used in the speech. Because I do. Because, because let's be clear. It was, it was a populist speech. It was a very populist speech. And for that, for, for that fact, let's just take a moment and thank, not the president for that, but let's thank the Occupy movement. So thank you, Occupy movement. Thank you, occupiers everywhere, for shifting the conversa- conversation, shifting the rhetoric, because, completely honest here, if it wasn't for Occupy, there is no way, there is no way in hell President Obama says things like this uh, in, in the speech on Tuesday. In the speech, he called economic fairness the, quote, defining issue of our time. Which it is, which it is, it is the, uh, the defining issue of our time. But again, this, the, you know, economic fairness was not part of the national conversation before the Occupy movement. It wasn't. It wasn't. You all know this. You all remember this. The conversation was all about us austerity. It was all about how much should we cut? How much should we cut? Now, now we have th- we have President Obama saying things like this in his State of the Union. He said he said on Tuesday, "quote We can either settle for a country where a shrinking number of people do really well, while a growing number of Americans barely get by." Or we can restore an economy where everyone gets a fair shot, everyone does their fair share, and everyone plays by the same set of rules. Again, populist, Occupy-inspired language. He would not be saying this if the conversation hadn't been shifted. He also said, he also said, quote, now you can, actually I really like this quote. He said, quote, now you can call this class warfare all you want. But asking a billionaire to pay at least as much of as much as his secretary in taxes, most Americans would call that common sense. Again, a good line, good populist, occupy-inspired line. And you know, I mostly, I mostly, you know, I, I personally would rather see him say, "Yeah, it is a class war. It's, it's, it, you know, but it's the one percent who, who started the class war." But again, it's a good line. I'm fine with it. That's great. I'm good. That's great. Um, you know, he he called again for letting the Bush tax cuts expire for the rich, uh, which, again, as I've said before on the show, really they are, you know, I'm, I'm going to call it like it is, they are the Bush-Obama tax cuts for the rich. Until they expire, until Obama makes them expire, they are the Bush-Obama tax cuts for the rich because President Barack Obama extended them. Barack Obama extended Bush's tax cuts for the rich, the rich so they are the Bush-Obama tax cuts for the rich. And look, I'm glad, I'm glad he wants to stop them now, but the fact of the matter is, he promised, he promised that he'd let them expire before, and then he extended it, he extended it, so what, I'm supposed to believe that, he, that he's going to make them expire now? I don't believe it. I don't believe it, and that's the problem. That is the whole entire problem with Obama. You know, the language is great, but without the action behind them, they're just words. But we can welcome the language because, again, having making the, the fact that the president's saying it is great. Because if he wasn't saying it, we'd be totally screwed. I mean, we are we're totally screwed anyway. Let's be honest with each other. We're totally screwed. But but look, so. 
the one thing I actually want to get to about about the about the the state of the union. The most interesting thing that came out of the speech to me uh, was that President Obama announced uh, the creation of a new Justice Department Mortgage Crisis Task Force. Uh, he said he said in the speech, "quote This new unit will hold accountable those who broke the law." Speed assistance to homeowners and help turn the page on an era of recklessness that hurts so many Americans. Okay, so let's dissect that a little bit. Um, I like, I like the hold accountable part. I like that part. However, however, when you get to the end, when you say things like turn the page, when you say things like turn the page, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, I start to get a little worry. Worried. Uh, I started to get a little wary. I started to get to not believe it because to me, to me, that sounds a hell of a lot like we need to look forward, not look backward. We need to turn the page, not look forward. We need to look forward, not backward. And, and, which, which is that whole thing. That whole thing has been Barack Obama's mo his entire presidency, which is uh, not prosecuting elites who who who, who commit crimes. Because um, really, I, I have to, I have to ask this. I really I have to ask this. What exactly does what exactly does accountable mean to President Obama? What does it mean? What does it actually actually mean? Does it mean does it actually mean prosecutions? Does it mean jail time for those whose recklessness and lawbreaking destroyed our economy that cost millions of Americans their homes? What does that mean? What does it actually mean? Because okay, okay, so look. It could be a good thing. I mean, it could. It could be a good thing. But at the same time, at the same time, the same time that he's announcing this, supposedly, supposedly the White House is still, they are reportedly still trying to push a ridiculous sweetheart settlement deal for the big banks. They're supposedly still trying to push, push, push that, that sweetheart deal where the, where these big banks that caused this crisis would get off just paying a small fine and avoiding prosecutions. Um, he's doing both things at once, supposedly. Uh, so, uh, also, uh, again, again, Obama actually said in the speech, he actually said in the speech, quote, that, quote, the banks will repay a deficit of trust. Okay. How? How exactly are the banks going to do that? And forget, you know, look, forget that. Forget how. Forget how. What about Why? Why would the big banks do that? Why would the banks do that? Does, does Barack Obama seriously, does he seriously really believe, does he believe that Wall Street were, are going to repay the deficit of trust out of what? The goodness of their hearts? They're gonna do that, they're, they're going to, they're going to trust, they're gonna, Obama's gonna trust that Wall Street is gonna start doing the right thing? Are you friggin' kidding me? Are you friggin' kidding me? Look, former, former cr- prosecutor, uh, Neil, Neil Borofsky, he tweeted this about the proposed, proposed task force, the proposed a mortgage task force. He said, quote, he said, quote, if the task force is created either because the DOJ, which is the Department of Justice, either because the DOJ hasn't done an investigation or because a three-year DOJ investigation is a failure, how does Holder keep his job? That's a great question, isn't it? That's a great question. And look, you know, look, if it ends up, if it ends up that this task force is for real, you know, great, you know, awesome, wonderful. If, 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 if bankers are started to be prosecuted, 
amazing, awesome. But the, the, he raises an amazing point. What the hell has the DOJ been doing for the last three years about this? What the hell has Eric Holder been doing about this for the last three years? You know the answer. Nothing. They've been doing nothing. So why now? Why now? You know, frankly, we know the answer. It's because because the conversation has shifted. Because the conversation has shifted and Obama's up for re-election. The conversation shifted because of the pressure from Occupy. And because because Obama knows that, that, that economic populism is really the only chance he has at keeping his job at being re-elected. Is the only reason this is happening now. But but the, the, but then you have to ask yourself if that is the motivation. If the motivation is strictly political and it's not actually about bringing to justice uh, the people who caused this, because again, this crisis did happen four years ago. Everybody, four years ago. If the motivation isn't justice, just how good will this task force actually be? You know, you know. Hey, maybe maybe it'll be good. Maybe. I mean, you know, uh, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman is, is heading it up. Uh, and, and he has, frankly, been, you know, a, a, a champion on actually trying to, 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 to do this. He's loudly opposed the sweetheart deals for big banks. He's actually trying, you know, supposedly he actually is trying to come together with prosecutions. So perhaps, perhaps it's going to be legit. But here's the thing. Here's the ultimate thing here. Personally, I, and I think many of you also are at this point too, I am past, way, way past the stage of trusting President Obama. I am past, I, I am actually, I'm, I'm also past the stage of trust but verify with President Obama. And, 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 and the truth is, the only stage that's left for me, and frankly, it's the only stage that there ever really should be anyway for any of us. You know, this is something that, that, that this is the only stage we should ever actually be in at all. The only stage that there ever should be is verify. Just verify. Hi, Jay. This is Rachel from Boston, Massachusetts. I am calling because I was really pleased to hear this show this week, and I wanted to bring up the fact that hormonal birth control is used not only for the prevention of having a baby, but for people like myself who use it for the prevention of seizures. And... I know for a fact that hundreds of thousands of women do use hormonal birth control to control their seizures, and it's something that you'd have to, for a more in-depth look, talk to a neurologist about, but I have been very compelled to write former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney and say, take a look at the statistic, because he was a Massachusetts resident, and 
it's very important, especially with a serious medical condition like epilepsy, to take a look at that and say, it's not just women who are floozies and fooling around and having sex with whoever they want, but it's also women who use it for a variety of different medical issues because it controls different chemicals in the brain. So I just wanted to thank you for bringing the spotlight back on this issue and say there's a lot of other things to be considered other than just women who want to have sex. Thanks. Hello, my brother. This is EJ from Western New York. I actually called about um, trying to find uh, black leftist shows for your podcast. It's a little bit difficult because white lefties and black lefties are quite different. Black lefties um, are usually a little bit more... I like to say straightforward with the way they talk. They take the shine off of, uh, off it a little bit. But um, I did find one very good one um, called Sojourner's Truth. The only problem is a lot of the uh, topics they talk about, I don't seem to find many white left-wing guys talking about because, of course, they're serving black communities. But... Um, I, I want to definitely suggest that to your listeners, and I'd also like to suggest to your listeners to look up um, Occupied Territory podcast and the 99% Report podcast. You guys have a good one, okay? Peace. Hey, Jay. This is uh, uh, Patrick from uh, near Dallas. And I was just calling with a couple different thoughts on the most recent episode. One is... Um, that the uh, when they were talking about the uh, firefighters letting the house burn, to me that just uh, struck me as the most one of the the clearest reasons why uh, libertarianism just does not work. A lot of people think they can be independent, they want to be independent, everybody wants to be as independent as possible, but um, there are certain social safety nets that uh, we as a society need, and that just goes to highlight them. The second one would be. Uh, uh, corporate pollution. You know, as an individual, I can't not buy the products from some company that's polluting somewhere because I won't know about it. I won't hear about it. And it's only through a the force of a representative democracy that we would have the ability to combat that. Um, unfortunately, right now we have an entrenched plutocracy, so BP is able to you know get away with whatever. But uh, anyway, that would be a thought. Those are my comments. Thanks. Hey Jay, it's Carl in Jersey. It's January 30th and I just finished listening to your podcast from the 25th and the 28th tonight. Um, I know you're trying to put the issue of veganism and white privilege to bed, but I hope you'll indulge me just this one more message. I think what's fascinating about this topic is that intrinsic in the argument that people have been treated as badly as or worse than animals, uh, what's intrinsic in that argument is that the treatment of animals is the standard by which poor treatment is measured. In other words, if you're treated as badly as an animal, that's pretty bad. And if you're treated worse than an animal, well, that's mighty horrific. And I'm certainly not arguing that people should be treated as badly as animals, but I certainly won't argue that animals should be treated as badly as animals, or at least the way that they're treated today. And I don't think that this uh, feeling has anything to do with white privilege. 
Uh, I think it has to do with the same property that I have as probably 99.9% of your listeners, which is uh, a deep sense of empathy for others. And this certainly has nothing to do with me, me being white. It has everything to do with me being human. Certainly, we should be treating everybody better, people and animals, as a result. So thanks a lot, Jay. Uh, thanks for indulging me. And uh, thanks for everything you do. You have a great podcast. Good night. Hey, Jay. It's Curtis from Baltimore calling again. I've got a little bit of an activist call to action on the lines of uh, voting with your dollars. So it's uh, midwinter, and now is usually about the time when farms that have a CSA or a farm share or whatever nomenclature they want to use start collecting money for this coming growing season. If anybody's out there that's interested for it, or in it rather, you should totally do it. We participated in our first one last year, and we're going to do the same again this year. It was a great value. We actually, it's a lot of scratch to come up with all at once, but we actually saved a good deal of money over the growing season. Our grocery bill was cut by, you know, $25. Now, great that we're paying like, you know, roughly $20 a week for the farm share, but, you know, all worked out in the end. And you have local fresh veggies. Anyway, love the show. Thanks for putting uh, Blacking It Up in the mix. Great podcast. Love all you do. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So as I mentioned in the last show, I'm going to attempt to talk about a very nuanced discussion of the LGBT community. And and basically what I want to do is walk you through step-by-step a conversation I had that led to a very teachable moment. And I hope that we can all share in that teachable moment. So this conversation was about the It Gets Better campaign. And for those of you who don't know, this is the uh, campaign for uh, you know anybody to make a video encouraging gay youth who are struggling with life in general for the whole variety of reasons there are for for gay teens in America to uh, be having a hard time to encourage them to hang in there because it gets better. That's the whole idea. It was a phenomenally successful campaign. Uh, it went all the way up to Obama making a video and uh, and it's essentially universally thought of as a good and successful thing. So this conversation was between uh, myself and the intern for this show, actually Lauren, who happens to be a lesbian. And so she gives me the inside scoop on the LGBT community from time to time. And uh, so we were having a discussion and the It Gets Better campaign came up. So now I want you to focus on your own personal reaction to what I'm about to tell you that, you know, what happened in this conversation, because within those reactions of yours, and I want to hear from you to get your uh, opinions on this, within those reactions is the lesson to be learned, I think. So, you know, she was speaking to me, you know, very casually, you know, two friends talking, and she mentioned kind of offhandedly that the It Gets Better campaign, you know, it is, it is thought of by many in the LGBT community to be flawed, to not be nearly good enough and that uh, a, a new campaign has sprung up to try to uh, correct the wrongs of the It Gets Better campaign. Now think about how you're reacting to that. And I'm going to tell you how I reacted. 
without long before I knew why I was reacting this way, I knew that the way I was feeling was angry, like frustrated and angry. And I don't even know what else, but it, it did not take long. I mean, I started raising my voice. I started getting, uh, you know, frustrated and the, the conversation almost got to the point of being heated. And, uh, you know, I, I came to realize later that as a liberal, I totally believe in the idea that nothing is ever good enough. You should never discourage anyone from trying to make something better because everything can always be made better. That is kind of the premise of liberalism is we always want to move forward. No matter how good things get, you can always make it better. And so, so I, that's like at the foundation of my belief system. But when I was told that there are people who are like, oh yeah, the It Gets Better campaign, bullshit. What I was thinking, in, at least in the back of my head, was like, oh, come on. If that can't be considered good, what can be? And, and so it was, it was a sense of frustration with, the, with whoever, you know, she didn't say, it's just general. Whoever these people are who didn't think that that campaign was a good thing, then what are they thinking? And so that was my initial reaction. And then we discussed further and got more into depth. And, and there was discussion. And, you know, this is like a 45-minute conversation that I'm trying to condense into two or three minutes. But there was discussion about when you're speaking within your own community, you can take shortcuts in the conversation because it is known to those within the community what you're talking about. And, and there won't, there isn't th the same chance for misinterpretation. And so she was speaking to me as a friend as casually as she would speak to <clears throat> someone within the community itself. So I'm obviously an LGBT ally, but not really like super in the know. So she, she talked to me the same way she would talk to them and was like, oh yeah, like, you know how the It Gets Better campaign, like it, it was, it didn't go far enough. And I didn't know that. I hadn't heard that. And I reacted by being frustrated because it was something that I really, I thought it was great. I really, you know, I, I hope I promoted it on the show, I, although I can't remember if I did. But, you know, it was the sort of thing that everyone could feel good about. And so when, some, when something like that that everyone could feel good about gets kind of spit on, well, that sucks. But it turns out that that was a little bit of a misinterpretation because she had taken one of those shortcuts that I wasn't quite privy to. So the idea is that essentially in the LGBT community, as, as best as I know, uh, I'm sure I'll be corrected, is, is that the It Gets Better campaign is a piece of the puzzle. It's a start, but it, it has this underlying message of if we all just wait, things will get better. And when you, when you phrase it like that, you're like, oh, wait, well, that's not quite, that's clearly not right because you can't just wait for things to get better. You have to make them better. Hence, the program that she was telling me about that is, you know, hoping to fill the gaps where the It Gets Better campaign uh, left off is the Make It Better campaign. So all of a sudden, I start feeling better about it. And I say, you know what? If you had just phrased it a little bit differently when you started telling me about it and you said, you know, there are many in the LGBT community who recognize the It Gets Better campaign as a good first step, but, you know, that doesn't quite go far enough. And so we're working on a new project that we want to take to the, to the next step, and I think you'll be excited about it. 
that, that would do the exact opposite of frustrate me. There, no part of me would think, oh, God, you know, we did one good thing and now we have to do another good thing. Like, no, not at all. I, I, of course, I'm always going to be in favor of moving forward, taking the next step, making things even better. And so in that kind of instance, we had this realization or, you know, I had this realization because it was all inside my own head and then I shared with her and now I'm sharing with you that it made a profound difference in, in how I was told about ex the exact same thing. It was two completely different ways to say the exact same thing. And so I, I, I want everyone to hopefully take this to heart and recognize that when speaking to people outside of your own community, it is unreasonable to expect people outside of your own community, even if they're allies of yours, and they want to help and they want to understand, it is unreasonable to expect them to understand. And, and therefore, you just have to be careful with the shortcuts you use. And frankly, I think that I may have just stumbled on something that like campaign political organizers, activist organizers have known for decades is that you have to give people wins. And you know, as I sit here and I'm talking, I'm actually having flashbacks to my old job at the nonprofit where that is – I mean we've had these conversations before and, and it's all tying together for me now. You can't have allies who are working for you and volunteering for your uh, campaign with without giving them wins if you keep telling them that we failed therefore we need to try harder we failed therefore we need to try harder people will get discouraged and disgruntled and irritated with the whole project and and you're going to lose them but if you can show them we've won and now we're pushing further we did a good job but it's not far enough and, you know, but you can give solid wins every once in a while, like the It Gets Better project and say, like, we, that was a solid win we had. And now we're going to build on that. That pumps people up. And, and just by, just by phrasing it a little bit wrong, th there was that moment where instead of being pumped up, I was frustrated. And, and obviously that's not what she intended or expected at all. She was taken completely by surprise at my reaction at first. And, uh, and as was I, <laughs> but, uh, but as we talked through it and worked through it, we kind of learned this lesson together, which I found fascinating and said during that conversation, I think I just found a good commentary for the show. And she said, oh, well, Jesus, be careful with that because uh, if you say it wrong then you're going to probably offend a whole lot of people without even knowing it because you don't want to give the impression that you're discouraging people in the LGBT community from pushing their issue further and further and further. And so hopefully I've succeeded in not offending those people. So that's going to be it for today. I'm just going to thank a couple of members before I go, as I always do. Michael P. signed up for a Leftist Monthly membership back on September 10th, 2010, and he's stuck with the show ever since then, and uh, he, he writes in all the time, which I, which I love. I wish I had time to respond more often, and, but his most recent email, he's, he lives in Australia, and he was bragging about how he had uh, 10 months of hospital care that ended up costing him about $1,100. And he, he was writing in in response to my friend who, uh, who spent, I think, two nights and uh, two nights and 
two and a half days in the hospital and ended up costing her $25,000. So Michael P. (laughs) with his leftist membership and Thomas S. uh, also signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on October 18th, 2010 and has stuck the show since then. So huge thanks to Michael and Thomas and all the members and donors who make the show possible. I can't do it without you guys. For everyone else, of course, you can help support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Stay tuned into the show by joining with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestoftheleft.com. The of black and white. Took apart a picture that wasn't right